Welcome to the Evolution 2.0 podcast, where we explore the intersection of art, technology, business, biology, and spirituality. Here, you'll discover new trends in evolution that are changing the way we think about everything. This is your host, Perry Marshall, author of Evolution 2.0, 80-20 Sales and Marketing, and guides to Ethernet, Google, and Facebook. I'm founder of the Evolution 2.0 Prize, a quest for the missing link between Earth science, the information age, and life itself. Let's join the conversation now. So this is Perry Marshall. I am here with Dean Raiden, and Dean is at the Institute of Noetic Sciences, and he is an author of the book, The Conscious Universe, and he is well known in the world of investigating paranormal phenomena. And I was introduced to Dean through Stu Kaufman. And I was at Stu Kaufman's house a couple of years ago. He had an origin of life meeting after his 80th birthday party. And the subject of this stuff came up and he said, well, I'm writing a paper with Dean. And then not too long ago, this paper came out and it's called is the brain mind quantum a theoretical proposal with supporting evidence and it's a preprint it hasn't been through peer review yet uh, but i've read it and it's got a lot of very interesting things in it so dean i am very happy to have you on the evolution 2.0 podcast and welcome and i'm hoping that you can just pick up on a comment that you made just before we started, you said, I was dragged kicking and screaming into, uh, why, why don't you just complete that thought? Because I thought that was a very interesting start to your story. So I went to graduate school uh, for electrical engineering and got my doctorate in experimental psychology. And when you do that, as um, most fledgling scientists and academics do, you're taught within the philosophy of materialism, but without being told that that is a philosophy or that there's a set of assumptions that underlie what you're learning. Right. So I remember very clearly in grad student, I, I was looking at a book called How to Make a Brain, which is written by cyberneticists. And I was thinking, oh, this makes a lot of sense. I, I just need to create something which is complex enough with enough feedback systems in it and it would become conscious. It would become a brain basically. Yeah. So at the same time, I, I was always interested in psychic phenomena. I started actually doing experiments in graduate school, precognition experiments. I was at the University of Illinois, and we had the Plato system, which was a precursor of the Internet, in that there were something like a thousand terminals all around campus and interconnected. And so as part of my dissertation, I was programming on the Plato terminals and then, among other things, I just wrote a precognition experiment to see whether people would like to have fun with it. So we collected a lot of data from a lot of people and never published the results, but it was written about in, in the campus newspaper. And I got some interesting results, suggesting that when you get enough data, you can start seeing interesting things like precognition at a small scale. Nope. It, so, some people won't know what precognition is. Could you just give us a... A snapshot? Sure. So precognition is the idea that uh, you can perceive future events uh, that you cannot infer. So non-inferable future outcomes. And the way you do that in an experimental context is 
you use a true random number generator to generate a target, a picture, a number, something in the future after you make your selection. So mm. if, the, if the generator is based on a true random event, which typically is traced back to a quantum phenomenon, then in principle, it shouldn't be predictable. And yet, looks like actually you can predict it to a small extent. Okay, so you found that people had a better than chance success in predicting what picture was going to get shown them next by a random number generator. Right. In this particular case, I had a, uh, a two-dimensional space on the screen, and you had to predict where you thought a dot would be placed in that space. Mm. So that It was not pictures or numbers. It was more like a spatial kind of test. And so okay. the, the measurement then was how close did they get to where the actual target showed up, mm -hmm. and they were closer than you would expect by chance. And I've repeated that experiment several other times. So that got me interested in, uh, in using the same tools that had, had already been taught in, in my academic career to apply it to stories that we all know about psychic phenomena, and more importantly, about the empirical database that, that I had learned about. Like the library at the University of Illinois, is a Champaign-Urbana, had a very extensive collection um, parapsychology. So mm. this is work going back to the late 1800s where people were doing experiments to see if things like telepathy and clairvoyance and that sort of thing were real. So I started doing that and I continue to do that. And I've now been doing those ex kinds of experiments full-time for the past 30 years and part-time since I graduated, basically, since my doctorate. So you, you go through school, you end up being a complete materialist without knowing that that's what you are. And then yes. after about 20 years of doing experiments in this in parapsychology and convincing myself that the phenomena are real, then the question is, well, how do you explain it? Because that's always the next question that comes up. Well, what do you mean that you could guess what the future is? So you start looking at naturally materialistic approaches to understanding how, how is this possible, assuming that the consciousness is, is somehow emerging from the brain and that's how it works. And you find very quickly that it is very, very difficult to explain how some of these phenomena are real from a purely materialistic. And by that, I mainly mean a classical physics perspective, which is how within psychology, that's how most psychologists and neuroscientists think about what's going on. The only possibility then of, of another way of thinking about it is imagining that, that we, we not only live in a quantum reality, but our brains are, activate, are, are operating in some way at the quantum domain. And, and so there would be quantum phenomena like non-locality associated with ordinary things like perception and cognition and so on. That would be a way of taking a materialistic approach, except that as I said, most people don't think of materialism in a quantum fashion because it is so radically different than classical mechanics. So I leave open the door a little bit that there still might be a materialistic way of thinking about this, except the strange sort of material that is described in quantum mechanics, which might not be material at all. So, Dean, when you talked about being dragged, kicking and screaming, you triggered a conference that I went to five years ago. It was at the Royal Society. It was called 
new trends in biological evolution. And Dennis Noble was giving a presentation and he was talking about how organisms receive random events from the environment and they choose how they're going to respond to them. So like the immune system, it'll hold certain things constant and then it will, it will allow a little part to vary and it will look for an antigen to fight off a germ and it will find one and it doesn't once one that'll stick, but it doesn't know what'll work. And so it, it's kind of like rolling the dice on a, a certain part of the computer program. And so he was explaining this and a scientist stood up and he said, no, wait a minute. He goes, all you're doing is showing the incredible power of natural selection. And Dennis said, no, he said, I used to think like you do for years I was a materialist just like you. And I thought, oh, you know, these are just random interactions and this is just billiard balls banging around in the universe. Mm -hmm. He goes, it took a long time and a lot of data, but I came around to a different view. And I am able to see something that you're not able to see. And like the guy was kind of fighting with him and Dennis goes, no, listen to me. And Dennis is, you know, 80 years old. He's a extremely accomplished scientist. And, you know, he held the floor and he maintained his authority and it, it was a turning point in the meeting. And I, I just, your comment reminded me of that because he was basically saying the exact same thing you said. I was schooled in this way of thinking. I didn't know any other way to think. I thought this was it, but it didn't explain a whole bunch of things mm-hmm. that are clearly very important in the world. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So every time that you are taught a certain set of assumptions and you don't quite know that, there will be anomalies that those assumptions don't address. So what I've come to, the, the way I think about it now is that materialism is perfectly fine. It's just like classical mechanics is perfectly fine, but that doesn't explain everything either. So right. you, can, you can carve up physics into at least three different domains, the domain of the very large, very fast, and the domain of the very small, and then the human domain. So classical physics, relativity, quantum mechanics, and so on. So what you find historically is, and I think this is probably true in every field, although I, I can't prove that yet, that you start with theories that are really good for a certain domain, and then there are these anomalies out on the edge. You need to expand your set of assumptions. You don't take away what was there, you just expand it. So I now see materialism as a subset of a more comprehensive understanding of reality, where the more comprehensive part now suddenly begins to accommodate a whole range of anomalies. And that that expansion requires that something about consciousness be way more fundamental than it is perceived when it's only inside a materialistic perspective. So, Let's talk through this in very basic layman terms. So when you use the term quantum non-locality, can you give us something we would be familiar with or, or, or an experiment or something that the people could use to understand that concept? Well, probably the, uh, the way that it's talked about most often is through things like quantum entanglement. So, Quantum entanglement suggests that if elementary particles, photons or electrons are prepared in a certain way and they interact, then when they separate, they're not completely isolated. They're not separate anymore. 
They are sharing properties. So terms like superposition, mixed states, those kinds of words are used. When this was first realized in the 1930s, uh, that superpositions might be real things, because at that point, they're just mathematical constructs. Uh, Einstein and his colleagues said, that's ridiculous. God doesn't play dice with the universe. And, and God doesn't like spooky action at a distance, because that's essentially what it's about. What the spooky action at a distance means is that you would have photons or electrons that are separate in space and time that still have properties that are somehow connected, at least correlated. So it took 40 or 50 years for experimental methods to be devised and tested to show that that is actually true. Mm -hmm. So now entanglement is used in all kinds of technologies because it's a real thing and it's useful. So that's the kind of non-locality we're talking about. There are separations in space and time where they're somehow still connected or at least correlated in, a, in larger than or higher strength than you would find in any kind of classical correlation. So I have proton over here and a proton over here, and they might be a million miles away, but they are actually in some kind of synchronization with each other, shall we say. Right. And this is what you mean by non-locality, that the connection between these two things is not at any one place. Is that accurate? Well, the connection spans space, like uh, farther than the speed of light, which is important. Mm -hmm. So it spans the speed. It is faster than the speed of light or maybe instantaneous. So attempts to measure how fast, I mean, if you, if you take two particles and you measure one and you, you immediately know what the other one is. Uh, that's like a classical correlation. But in this case, with a non-local connection, you can have undetermined effects on both sides. This is like the basis of quantum mechanics. So you, it doesn't really have any properties until you measure it. So you have two no properties here. Well, you measure this, it collapses into a given property. And the other one immediately somehow knows what you did over here, independent of space and also independent of time. So the connections we're talking about, some sort of connection through space and time. The other way of thinking of it is that these are connections that are outside of space-time. We, we live in space-time. We have clocks and all that. And so sometimes you use the idea of, of a, a block universe. You imagine the universe that you're looking at from outside, and it's all kind of already there. Well, these kinds of connections are taking place outside of that everyday universe somehow. So nobody knows exactly how, but that's empirically what we what we see. So something about uh, that the there's a strangeness then in quantum mechanics, this non-local connection property. There's a second strangeness, which is that there's something about the act of observing a system which causes it to react in some way. And there's lots of disagreements over what does it mean to observe or measure. Some people think that has something to do with consciousness. Some people say it has nothing to do with consciousness, but there's no grand consensus yet. Okay. We have those two strange things in quantum mechanics and mysteriously exactly the same two things involving psychic phenomena. So what's strange about psychic phenomena? There are connections that transcend space and time and something about the act of observing through focused intention seems to change aspects of the measurable world. So the question that arises is, you have these, these two strange things on, in the quantum world and in the psychic world. Is that a coincidence? Mm. Is it meaningful in some way? So this is kind of a starting point where Stuart and I were, were talking 
about it, what are the consequences of that? Is it really a coincidence? Well, a case can be made that it's not a coincidence. Someone has a psychic experience. They're experiencing the nature of the quantum world directly. That's one of the implications of it. So that's great. So now can you backfill? What are some of these psychic phenomena and how do they correlate with this quantum picture that you just like, feel free to give any examples that, that you like. Okay. So let's, let's assume there are aspects of the brain that are operating at a quantum scale, in which case there are aspects of the brain, which are localized here and doing all the usual stuff that neuroscience tests, but it also expands out. There are pieces of it that are outside of space-time, all through the universe, as far as we can tell. Well, that, that didn't suddenly happen. We evolved in that way. So the, so the process of evolving how we perceive, how we think, our impressions, our dreams, all of that stuff, small elements of all of those processes should involve a non-local component. So if I'm thinking about something, I'm perceiving something, at least in principle, if this theory is correct, then part of my thoughts are not just me, they're coming from somewhere else. And part of my perceptions are coming from somewhere else. And so I have a way to contact the outside. So the way that the phenomena, the, these experiences are described fall into four classes. Uh, taxonomy is four basic classes. One is telepathy. Somehow okay. minds are connected at a distance, mostly through space, but occasionally through time. Perception transcends space and time. That's called clairvoyance. Perception, especially that goes through time, is precognition. What also could be called retrocognition, where you perceive something that took place in the past. Uh, and the, the fourth category is psychokinesis, which means that your focused intention is manipulating something outside in the world that you can measure as a change. And Again, all of these are parallels, or at least um, maybe metaphors, somewhere between an analogy and a metaphor for what we see in quantum mechanics or quantum type phenomena. So each of the four categories, uh, telepathy, precognition, clairvoyance, and psychokinesis are all completely amenable to study in the laboratory and all have been studied since the 1880s. Mm -hmm. And so just to give one example, in 2018, there was a, a major article published in American Psychologist, which is the flagship journal of the American Psychological Association, not especially known for being sympathetic to psychic phenomena. Yeah. And yet that article summarized 10 meta-analyses, about a thousand experiments overall, that have been looking at these four basic phenomena and variations thereof. And the author comes up with a conclusion that there's no question that these phenomena are real by the same criteria that are used to establish any other kind of, of effect. Mm -hmm. So what's very interesting then is, so here's that paper. A year later, a response is published by skeptics who don't think any of it is possible. And what's most interesting is that they say explicitly in that response that they will not address the data. <laughs> <laughs> the reason they don't address the data is because they say a priori, this is impossible. Right. And it's impossible because they're coming from a materialistic perspective where that there's only certain things are allowed and other things are simply not allowed. So by fiat, they would say, yeah, there's 150 years worth of data, but it's irrelevant. Right. 
So if that's the, the state of skeptical response to the, the empirical data at this point, we're doing really, really well, I would say. Well, I had a friend named Howard Jacobson, and uh, he's written some marketing books, some nutrition books. He has a PhD in history from Princeton. And about 15 years ago, he told me about the Princeton Engineering Anomalies Research Lab. Yeah. That he'd actually considered doing study in that department, end up not doing it. But he was very familiar with it. And he said, Perry, you need to get a book called Margins of Reality by uh, Brenda Dunn and Robert Jan. And I interviewed her yeah. uh, in this podcast a couple of years ago. It's a very interesting interview. So I go through this book and it describes they're dropping balls through the air and their people are concentrating on the balls and they're proving that they can slightly displace the trajectory of the balls by concentrating. And they're proving that a person could get on a train and go somewhere and send another person a picture. And they have this very elaborate experiment for figuring out if the picture was accurate or not. And they would meticulously do it. And they would, they would prove that people could change the random distributions of random number generators by certain amounts. And then uh, some, one of my friends sent me your book, The Conscious Universe. Now, I'm an electrical engineer like you, and I, I've written a scholarly book, which is Evolution 2.0. I've written a science paper. I know the scholarly world, and I know what scholarship looks like, and I know what experiments look like. And when you start peeling the onion on this, which you find is well, since 1880, there has been stacks, there's been entire libraries worth of research on this. Mm -hmm. And I don't see any way you could deny that this is the case. Like if you, unless you believe that all of your fellow human beings are just a bunch of liars, uh, in which case you, you wouldn't trust anything. Right. Um, this is clearly the case. And so, well, so why don't you come back to your story? So you're an engineer who got a degree in psychology. That's very interesting, you know, bringing those two worlds together. And then these questions come up and you do these, the dot experiments. And then what? So then what happened? Uh, then when I graduated, the Pear Lab at Princeton was actually looking for a psychologist to join their team. Mm -hmm. So I interviewed there. I thought this would be the best thing ever. And the advice I got, even though they, they invited me for the interview, was you probably don't want to do this as your first job. <laughs> make it really difficult for any future job because of the, the, the sociopolitics of the academic world. And so even though it's at Princeton and the people I, I know the people who are, are working there are all stellar, they said it probably for your, for your own sake, it'd be better to, to go somewhere else. So I went to Bell Labs. And so Bell Labs was a good place to start. Uh, there were about 50,000 scientists and engineers there at the time. Wow. You learn very quickly what big science is able to do. And, and it was a great proving ground for me. And I was doing quite well. And on the side, I kept doing experiments. Uh, I was doing mainly experiments on mind-matter interaction. And the reason I was able to justify that as part of my work is because the combination of engineering and psychology meant that I ended up in a human factors division. 
So we were studying people interacting with machines and computers and all that sort of stuff. So we always heard, as every laboratory does, a certain lab lore, which is essentially Murphy's Law, which says that things will break at the worst possible time. And we saw this again and again. Like we would have some complicated system that we would build. And if we had a dignitary come who would watch a demo and one particular person was present, it would never work. And if that person was not present, it would work. And so we, we simply learned, okay, we don't know what's going on here, but there's something is happening. And then I started looking into the literature and you find out all kinds of stories about gremlins and triple redundant machines breaking and for no reason and that sort of thing. So I proposed to my management that here's this literature suggesting that there's a direct connection between mind and matter. Why don't we do, could do some experiments on that and see maybe that's one of the one-tenth of 1% of the reason why things fail. So they said, okay. And so I'd started doing that and I was pretty quickly able to replicate what I was seeing in the literature, namely that, yeah, you can push around probabilistic events to a small extent. And, you know, that, that certainly caught my attention. And I eventually got the, the uh, imprimatur of Bell Labs to actually go ahead and publish it under Bell Labs name. Mm. So that was interesting. I started going to conferences where people were talking about this sort of thing. And at one of the conferences I was at, it caught the attention of people who were doing this for the U.S. government as part of the psychic spying program, which is now known as Stargate. And so I was recruited for that program and I, I joined it. So that was the first time that I was able to see very highly talented people do clairvoyance, uh, not just in experimental context, but for operational missions for the army and for lots of other agencies. Mm-hmm. That blew my mind. And so uh, at that point, I, re- I decided that if there was a way that I could continue as part of my career to do that kind of work, absolutely, yes. Like the most major mystery that you can imagine. Mm-hmm. So I, I went back to Bell Labs. Uh, within a few months, I was invited to go to Princeton. So I spent the next three years at Princeton in a, uh, not in the pair lab, but in a multidisciplinary program that was developed and included the pair lab. And part of the strategy was, how do we take these weird anomalies and plug it into philosophy and plug it into psychology and that? So my job was to figure out ways of doing that. Yeah. To make a long story short, from one place to the next, it was either full-time doing this kind of work, sometimes part-time. Uh, and now for the last 20, how long, 26, almost 30 years, full-time. Uh, in Silicon Valley and 20 years uh, at uh, the Institute of Noetic Sciences doing primarily experimental work. And so what often happens when, when you get older, you start thinking more in philosophical terms, like people have been asking forever, how does this work? Mm-hmm. So about 15 years ago, I started to think more seriously about this because I guess I was assuming that we'd eventually figure out in a materialistic way. So I started looking at at the underlying metaphysics of our assumptions and what we do. And I learned, because I had never taken the philosophy courses before, that there are other philosophical worldviews, the the esoteric worldviews and what philosophers will call neutral monism and idealism and all that. And then I started to realize that, and by the way, I have four books now. So The Conscious Universe was the first. 
The okay. second was called Entangled Minds, which is about the physics, the underlying physics of what's going on here is primarily quantum mechanics. Uh, the third book was called Supernormal, which is talking about the Eastern esoteric worldview, which is primarily that consciousness is fundamental. And that's where I really was able to, to dive into this notion that materialism is a subset of a more comprehensive worldview. And materialism as a worldview has really only been around for around 300 years. Yes. Since the Enlightenment. And for 10,000 or more years, we had these other ways of thinking about things. And then, so my most recent book is called Real Magic, and it's the Western esoteric worldview. It's called Real Magic because I'm talking about the uh, practices that developed as a result of a very different kind of worldview. So if your worldview is that consciousness is fundamental, people will behave and do things in a different way. Well, it's called magic. I mean, literally magical practices, mm -hmm. all of which require that consciousness is in fact fundamental. Right. And so th that book is then doing a parallel between here's what the, these magical practices and esoteric tradition is about. This is how it's been tested in science. And then look at that. It's the same thing. We, did, we don't call it. In fact, I admit in the book that if someone had told me before I started writing that book that I was doing science on magic, I would have said, that's ridiculous. This isn't magic. Well, it sounds like an oxymoron. Yes. Scientific it's, magic, magical science. Like, well, those two things don't go together, right? So yes. tell me more. Okay. So what are magical practices? There are three categories of magical practice. One is called divination. So the classic is uh, gazing into a, uh, a crystal ball or gazing into a mirror or, or throwing the runes or, or throwing the I Ching or all of those methods are all about how do we perceive through space and time? That's mm -hmm. what it is. Okay. So lots of methods have been developed, but that's the practice. The second practice is called uh, force of will, which is about shaping destiny. It's all, all the spell casting and grimoires and all that stuff. All of that is about if you use your focused intention, does it do something in the world at large? The third category is called theurgy, which is about uh, working with spirits, interacting with spirits, that sort of thing. So those are the three categories. There's practically an infinite number of ways that it's been expressed, but they're basically the same thing. Okay, so is there any evidence that divination works? Well, we can cast that into slightly different form. Is there any evidence that we can perceive through space and time? Yeah, there's a lot of evidence. So mm -hmm. at least from a scientific perspective, working from a very different worldview, we get relatively small effects, but high confidence that they're real, that those practices that those people were doing was real, at least in principle. The same goes for force of will. That's the whole realm of, of probabilistically pushing the world around. There's a lot of evidence for that. And in theurgy, the closest that we've been able to come from a scientific perspective is studying people like mediums. So a medium claims that they're talking to a dead person, a spirit. Well, we can't verify that because we don't have any way of objectively measuring a spirit. But what we can do is measure whether the information that the medium says that they get from the, the spirit is correct. And we can do it under double and triple blind conditions where it's not cold reading or any of the usual ways of faking it. And so that works. Mm -hmm. So, again, it doesn't say exactly what is claimed in theurgy because we don't know if there are spirits, but at least that the practice of it can be confirmed as, as verifiable. 
And so far, we, even with an enormous amount of effort, no one has any good idea whether or not anything survives death or whether there are spirits or anything like that. But science is pretty good at what it does. And I would expect that with more effort and more clever designs, perhaps, or something, that we eventually will be able to, to see if something like that is, exists. And by the way, the reason why it's so difficult to imagine that something might exist is because science is materialistic. The whole epistemology is based on that. And yet here we're talking about something where we need a different kind of epistemology. So we say, okay, let's just for a moment put on glasses where we're looking at the world as though consciousness really is fundamental. In which case, now you can say, oh, I have consciousness. I'm part of that grand consciousness with a capital C, and I'm embodied. So I have consciousness, but I'm also physical. Well, maybe there are other forms of physicality that can be embodied yeah. and still be conscious, in which yeah. case we would probably call that a spirit. Mm-hmm. or at least one form, it could be called a spirit. It doesn't have a body like mine. It's invisible or it's energetic or something like that. So when you put on uh, the, the different philosophical assumptions and suddenly the plausibility case can be made that those practices were real, what people report was real. Of course, in all cases, with a huge overlay of superstition, a huge overlay of religious and, and spiritual concepts, which don't really admit themselves very well into scientific practice. But nevertheless, that, that wasn't my interest. It was not about religion or spirituality. It was about people report these strange things forever. Mm-hmm. Science supports it. Well, how do, how do we begin to think about it? So that's how I got drawn over many years from thinking of this in a purely, not only materialistic, but mechanistic way into a different way of, of even thinking about these kinds of phenomena. And the more I've been thinking about it, I've actually pulled away a little bit from idealism and now more of a fan of neutral monism. So it's, it's a way of saving the materialistic part, which works really good, but bringing in this other component. And so both material and mind emerge out of something else, something which we have no name of, except the Hindus have a name for it, but, but we don't. You have this paper with Stuart Kaufman, and it's called, Is the Brain-Mind Quantum a Theoretical Proposing with Supporting Evidence? And at the introduction, there's this quote by Jerry Fodor. Nobody has the slightest idea how anything material could be conscious. Nobody even knows what it would be like to have the slightest idea about how anything could be conscious. Yeah. And so... I think the reason that you say this right up front is that aren't you really saying if you claim to know how the universe works and you don't even have any idea how you perceive it in the first place, then wouldn't a little more humility perhaps be appropriate here? Is that a way of stating it? That is one way. The other way is to say that uh, physicists like to talk about theories of everything, yeah, which sometimes includes consciousness, but usually not. In a mainstream sense, you don't, physicists don't want to have anything to do with consciousness at all. It just <laughs> it messes up the problem. And I find kind of surprising that many physicists today don't realize that the founders of quantum mechanics were idealists. 
They mm. all started from the position where consciousness is fundamental. It didn't change the, the nature of quantum mechanics. It was still as good as it was when anybody else uses it. But it shows that your worldview, the way you imagine fundamental assumptions, does not influence the nature of the science. Mm. For some reason today, th this has changed over time. The positivists took over and basically said that it's no, you can only think of it in these terms. And that's one of the reasons why I think it infects the academic world in such a way that you can talk, you can write about magic, you can write about stage magic, esoteric magic, all of those kinds of concepts. You can do the same for beliefs about psychic phenomena, but you cannot in the academic world today propose that these are actually real things. And the reason you can't is, is the same reason why I mentioned that of the paper that said, we're not going to look at the evidence. The evidence has to be wrong because it doesn't fit our set of assumptions. Well, that's not science anymore. No, it's not. It really isn't. And yet this is the state and has been the state in the academic world for a long time. So, you know, part of what, again, partly of getting older here, I'm realizing that there are plenty of people who are interested in these things, cannot talk about it in the academic world, but would like to. Mm -hmm. So we're dealing with a taboo. And the taboo ultimately is a philosophical taboo or a metaphysical taboo. How do we break it? Well, you break it like any other taboo. You simply have more and more people talking about it. And the more prominent that they are, the more the taboo begins to break apart. And so this is why I was so happy that uh, Stu was interested in writing a joint paper because he carries weight. You get enough heavyweights poking at this thing, then at least you crack the foundations and people can discuss it openly. Because they can't even do that yet. Well, Stuart is a heavyweight. So a little more to the story. I've gotten to know Stu over the last couple of years, and he is swinging for the fences. And, and I, I've noticed that revolutionaries in science are almost always either under 30 or over 70. Yeah. Um, if they're in the middle and they're middle of their career and they've got a support a lab and publish their papers and get their grants. They kind of got to stay within the brackets. Yeah. Albert Einstein was 25. So if I understand what Stu is doing, I mean, he has, I looked him up. It was like many tens of thousands of scientific citations. He's one of the most quoted scientists in the literature. And I was talking to him about him doing this work with you and I go, wow, Stu, that's kind of risky. He goes, well, what are they going to do? Fire me? Yeah. And I think it's really beautiful when somebody's had a successful career, then instead of just playing golf or laying around or dying too early, that they devote themselves to breaking up some of the good old boys clubs and introducing some new thinking that's desperately needed. I agree. Yeah. So you say measurement converts possibles into actuals. Such a becoming is not deductive. Could you talk about measurement is a very, like, we think of it as a very ordinary thing. Okay, I got a tape measure and I go see how long my couch is. I believe you and Stu would say uh, measurement is a more profound thing than you realize. Can you explain why measurement is such a big concept in 
doing this investigation? Well, we were following along people like uh, Heisenberg and von Neumann and others in quantum mechanics who realized that when you measure, especially a quantum particle, you inevitably will disturb it. You, you have to because the, the, your measurement uh, devices are typically much larger than the thing you're measuring. That's part of the problem. Subsequently, it has been learned that measurement in quantum mechanics does not require that you interfere with a photon or electron. The reason its behavior changes has nothing to do with poking it. It has to do with your knowledge of it. Hmm. And so measurement of any type, whether it's with a ruler or some more refined element, if there isn't somebody at some point to know what the measurement is, it basically isn't a measurement. Something happened, but until there's knowledge of it happening, which presumably means consciousness, maybe the unconscious, but some form of living awareness, then it's not really measured. Well, so I'm very interested in this question because measurement is having a symbolic representation of something that happens somewhere else. Right. If my couch is 72 inches long, I have assigned the number 72 to mean something about my couch. And so not only is my couch this physical object that has its dimensions, but now it has a, the length has a meaning inside my head. Mm-hmm. And if I write down 72 on a piece of paper and take it to the store so I can buy some pillows or, or a rug, then that symbolic representation is now affecting other physical things. So that means that symbols are real. And I'm very interested in this question because my $10 million prize for origin of information requires somebody to generate code, which is symbolic representation. So this is a very fundamental thing. Measurements don't exist if there's not consciousness. Numbers don't exist. Symbols don't exist. Language don't exist. So it's kind of funny how in a materialistic world, everything that we're doing in assigning meaning to it is an immaterial thing, yet we don't recognize that we have done something immaterial. I mean, isn't that strange? Yeah, it's very strange. Yeah. And the uh, as uh, Wigner wrote, I think, about the strangeness of mathematics and being able to predict to extremely high levels of accuracy aspects of the measurable physical world. So what he didn't say in that is are those measurements inherently there? Does something have an inherent property or is it created in some sense as a result of doing the measurement? So up until recently, this, you know, it's more like a philosophical tree falling in the forest kind of question, but more refined experiments in quantum mechanics are suggesting that there actually is no fixed reality with properties out there until it is actually observed. Tell me more about that. How do we know that? Well, so I I can't go into the details of those experiments because they they go beyond my uh, my ability to remember it. But just as a summary of of the types of experiments, they involve things like entanglement uh, and superpositions. So a lot of them are talked about in terms of Schrodinger's cat. So you can make little Schrodinger cat things that are not a cat, obviously, but little tiny objects and measure whether it is actually in a superposition state before it is measured. 
And so through clever methods that they don't completely understand, they can say, yeah, before this thing is measured actually is in two states, like little vibrating things are in two places at the same time. And it's not when you look at it, it, it collapses into one of those states. But otherwise, when no one knows what it, what's happening in it, it's in multiple states. But it still raises very important questions on, like uh, I've done a number of studies using a double slit system, a, a double slit optical system, which is like the, the called the most beautiful experiment in physics because it's so simple and yet it shows very profound uh, properties. So you take a photon, you send it through two little slits, and then you look at a screen on the other side where we have a camera to look at it. But if no one is looking which of the two slits the photon goes through, you get an interference pattern. But if you do know which of the two slits it goes through, then you get a diffraction pattern. You get basically a particulate pattern. So there's something about what you know about the behavior of the photon that changes its behavior. So what we do in our experiments is we assign people the task to mentally imagine that they could tell which of the two slits the photon goes through and see whether that act, which is one of clairvoyance, changes the shape of the interference pattern. Because if it does, it would mean that somehow you're gaining information which called which path information out of that system and causing it to change its behavior. And now it's not your eye looking at it, it's pure your mind, your mind's eye mm. looking. So, so that seems to work. The results are not wildly significant, but over something like 28 experiments now, in four laboratories, we do see that there's, there's an interaction somehow. That is additional evidence that something about mind is related to behavior at the quantum level, probably beyond that too, because we know that quantum phenomena can be seen in a macroscopic sense as well. So this, it raises questions about what we think we mean by perception, by consciousness, by gaining information out of systems, and one of the consequences that was very strange was this one that, that goes through time. So I'll first describe the experiment. The experiment is you take a random number generator, you record a whole bunch of random bits on a hard disk, but nobody looks at it. You, you know it's been recorded, but you have no idea what they are. The next day, you play back the random bits that were recorded, but you assign people on this next day for this first batch, I want you to make more ones show up. And then the next batch, more zeros show up. So it's like you're influencing the system from the future. Well, these are called experiments in, in retro psychokinesis, and they work. So the interesting thing about this is, first of all, it works. Somehow mm -hmm. something in the future seems to be influencing something in the past, even though that's not quite the right way to think of it. Uh, but nevertheless, th th that's a strange thing. And the other strange thing is that this was predicted based on the notion of what measurement means in quantum mechanics. Mm. And it's, it's one of the first times that in the parapsychological world that a very strange prediction was made that was then tested, which turned out to be true. Okay, so this has very profound implications for all kinds of stuff. So Dean, let's say that a couple of decades from now, this had broken through, it was in the mainstream, it was being acknowledged, and people were accepting those conclusions and then running with them. 
What do you think are some possible outcomes, either scientifically, technologically, socially, that would happen when a body of, of work that's clearly already been established is incorporated into our practice of science? How would that change the world? All hell would break loose until it was realized that all of the textbooks remain exactly the way they were before. Like we don't throw away any textbooks. What we do is make more clear what the assumptions are within physics and within biology and within chemistry and all the rest. We just define it more precisely. And then say, what people generally do is say, well, how can I use this stuff? Well, it can be and is being used in healing. Like we, we there's thousands of cases of spontaneous remission of very serious illnesses where things disappear overnight. We have no idea, but they're in the medical literature. How, that, how does that happen? Yeah. Uh, if we can figure that out, well, we don't need highly complicated ways of, of treating things. We need perhaps more mental ways of understanding the nature of reality, something like that. So that, that would revolutionize medicine. Technology would be quite interesting because we're on the verge of quantum computing. And a case can be made that when focused consciousness creates negentropy, it creates order or it reduces randomness. Mm -hmm. And in particular, we just finished an experiment involving entangled photons as the target of mind-matter interaction. So using non-local mind to interact with non-local matter, meaning entangled photons, what we found was that if you put focused attention on entangled photons, the strength of the entanglement increases. Said a different way, the fidelity of the entanglement is better. Well, that's extremely important in quantum computing and in cryptography and all of the other areas where entanglement is being used as a, as a property. It looks like if you have people thinking in the right way, you get better fidelity of it. So that means that the, the methods will be much, that much more efficient. Another uh, place that would probably be extremely disruptive, which is one of the reasons why the status quo doesn't like this, is that it means that there are no secrets. Mm. So you, you can't have politics or even civilization run the way it is currently running if there are no secrets. <laughs> That's and a good thing think about. It is such a major change to the way that people behave, to our law, to government, that the pushback on that would say, maybe quantum mechanic weirdness is real and has something to do with the mind, but telepathy certainly is not real. Like by fiat, we are saying this is not real. And in clairvoyance, it's not real. It's very threatening to think about it as becoming mainstream. Civilization would change because then like every case that you hear in the news every day, somebody did allegedly did something. Well, now everyone will know exactly what happened because there are no secrets. And not only that, what kind of a government can you imagine that would have no secrets? It's like that it couldn't work. So I don't know how you could have a world where these things are fully accepted. And in the way that it's been handled so far, at least within the military context, is highly classified. Mm. Right. So within little bubbles, people knew, yeah, you could do psychic espionage. It works. But not outside this bubble. Everything would be disrupted outside of it. So right. I don't know how that happens. Well, this is 
totally fascinating. I really liked this paper. And I, I liked what I liked personally about it was it explained both the psychic phenomena, which I was already familiar with, but it it put it hand in hand with quantum phenomena. And what it tried to do was say, this is how these two worlds come together, which I think that was only possible because you and Stu collaborated on this. Yeah. Correct? Well, th there have been physicists over the years who have been thinking about how do we plug quantum mechanics and these together. So that, that has been going on. Stuart came up with a, a different way that I hadn't heard about before. Uh, the, the idea that possibles and actuals are ontologically real, mm. that solves a lot of problems too. So I was very happy to, to help him on this. Well, so why don't you just, just before we close, explain what it means for not only an actual, but a possible thing to be real. What is, what does he mean by that? Because that's, that's probably a good thing to chew on as we wrap. So real actuals, ontologically real actuals are things that we are out there that we measure the everyday world, right? Results of properties, things that we measure. Quantum mechanics says that the description of those actuals is preceded by potentials. Like the whole quantum mechanical description of the world is all about probabilities, possibilities, potentials. Yeah. Somehow the magic is that the potentials turn into the actuals. A measurement is made, it's no longer possible, it's actual. So Heisenberg said back in 1958 that maybe what we're looking at here as possibilities, quantum possibilities, it's not just a mathematical extraction or abstraction, it's real, it's ontologically real, it's possible, it's a possible thing, but it's a real thing in its own strange domain. Okay, so in, in other words, if it's possible for the light coming through the slit to be a particle or a wave, and it gets decided at some point, oh, it collapses to a particle, the wave possibility is still real in the quantum world. It didn't collapse that way, but it was still, it was a distinctly possible state before the choice was made. It, not it was, what we mean by that. Yeah, it was real and not an abstraction. That's a different, right? Because you could have a mathematical description of something and say, well, it's not real. It's just a way of thinking about it. Yes. This is saying, no, it is ontologically real. It is a real thing, but okay. it is not real in the way that we think of as ordinary matter. So okay. another way of thinking of it, and the reason why I like the neutral monism approach is that actuals are kind of like materialism. Impossibles are a lot more like idealism. Like kind of quasi-mental because they involve everything, like an in infinite number of possibilities, but usually only one actual as a result. So the actuals are harder, more like material things. Possibles are much more fluid. And as, uh, as Stu wrote in that, that paper, that the actuals have to correspond to Aristotle's law of the excluded middle. So when, when you make a measure and it's either here or there, it can't be both here or there. It can't be somewhere else. It's either this or that. Yeah. But possibles actually do allow for other logics because you could have a cat that is possibly alive and possibly dead. It could be here. It could be there. It, a very different way. And then like, it's not the way that we usually think of the world being. Yeah. But nevertheless, if that were ontologically real. Then suddenly all of these psychic things 
become a lot easier to understand. So that that's the proposal. That's like a different theoretical way of thinking about what quantum mechanics is saying. And ultimately, it's part of a, of a, a much larger increase in people interested in quantum fundamentals at this point. Like, what does this mean? Up until maybe 20 years ago, as a physicist, you could not answer those questions. You, you would not, not only answer, you couldn't even question the questions. You couldn't raise the question and still be considered a viable physicist because you don't talk about that stuff. Well, now it's becoming more and more important to actually understand it better because when you understand fundamentally what's going on, among other things, all kinds of other applications can come about from it. So it's there are pragmatic reasons for understanding and, and not just theoretical reasons. Uh, Dean, this has been fantastic. Uh, his paper, Is the Brain-Mind Quantum a Theoretical Proposal with Supporting Evidence? I'm going to have a link in the in the show notes. Dean, if somebody wants to go into the world of Dean Radin more, what's the first step that you would like them to take? DeanRadin.com. Excellent. Well, this has been fantastic, fascinating. I appreciate that you're doing this work even though there's, there's probably some other more lucrative thing you could be doing instead. I just think this is very more fun. It I am driven by curiosity and what I find to be fun to do uh, more than it's true. I, if I stayed at Bell labs, I'd probably be a lot wealthier than I have today, but that's okay. Yeah. Well, I'm glad you're having fun. Thank you very much, Dean. Thanks for, for being on. Until next time, this is the Evolution 2.0 podcast, bridging science, technology, business, and the big questions. To ensure you never miss an episode, subscribe on iTunes or on your preferred player. If you like the show, rate us on iTunes. Join our email list and social media at CosmicFingerprints.com. Evolution 2.0